I'm glad you guys are here to worship the Lord with us this morning, and I am privileged to be able to uh, finish up the fourth and final week of our Sing series here of January. So hopefully this series has been helpful for you. If you haven't been around here, I'd like to give just a little recap of what we have covered so far. In week one, Pastor Chris shared about how singing is fitting. Psalm 33, praise befits the upright. It is a good and fitting thing to do to declare God's worth. The second week, I was able to, pre- to preach that week, and I shared on the biblical command from Colossians 3.16 that we would let God's word dwell in us richly and that we would teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? Songs catchy. It's supposed to get stuck in our head, and I think that's by God's design. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about emotions. He talked about how emotion is like a, a what? An elephant, right? And an elephant needs something though, right? The rider. We need to steer our affections and our passion and our emotion towards things that are true and good, to the worth of Jesus, in other words. So that was week three. And on this final week, I would love to wrap up our time here by showing you from Scripture that singing is one of the ways in which we get to shape the next generation. So that's what we're going to cover today. The main idea of this sermon, I'm going to say multiple times, and it's this. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. Say that with me. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. Please open your Bibles up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're not very familiar with the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth one of your Bible. And as you open to chapter 6, I would love to give you the backdrop of the passage that we're going to cover today. The entire book of Deuteronomy deals with one great fear. The fear is this, it's apostasy, which is the big word for falling away from the true God of Israel, falling away from true devotion and allegiance to Yahweh, the one true God. And so Moses, who, who wrote the first five books of the Bible and records the, de- the uh, doings throughout history, he is very concerned that the future generation of the Israelites would keep the faith, that they would have exclusive worship of God alone and that there wouldn't be any other competitors. The first generation of Israelites, if you remember, uh, they were delivered from Egypt and from Pharaoh, weren't they? By God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. They were delivered. And as soon as they crossed through the Red Sea, they did what? They, many things, right? They began to grumble and complain. Where's the food at? We thought it was, it was better back in Egypt. Why did you leave us out here to die? Things like that. Grumbling, complaining hearts. And when Moses got the law from God, this gift of the law from Mount Sinai, what happens is while he's up on the mountain, they're down at the bottom doing what? They're making an idol. They're making a golden calf because they wanted something to worship rather than God alone. And so what happens is you just imagine how the Israelites are hearing this. Moses has seen the effects of the first generation sin and even his own sin, and he's not able to enter the promised land. And so he's standing at the brink, the wilderness behind them, and the promised land ahead of them, and he speaks to the people and implores them, he urges them not to fall into the practices and the worship of surrounding nations. He says, worship God alone. 
All right, please stand with me as we read the first 15 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking to the second generation. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. And you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord you shall fear, the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is God's word. Please be seated. We're going to begin by discussing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Moses' deep concern here, as I said, is that the Israelites would remain faithful to God. He commands them repeatedly to fear the Lord and to not forget Him. We have a tendency to forget, don't we? All of us do. And so did the Israelites. They're no different. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord has to do with two things. It has to do with a right understanding of who God is, and it also has to do with an understanding of how we are to respond in light of who God is. So first, who is God? God is holy. There is none like him. He is perfect in every way. He is set apart. He is beautiful and glorious and perfect in every single way. This is who God is. But to simply know that this is true isn't the fear of the Lord. 
The fear of the Lord is therefore to respond to this God, this God alone for who he is, and to stand in awe and wonder and reverence and fear of this God. We must understand this to understand what the fear of the Lord is. We don't fear him as we might fear a bully who can overpower us. But no, we fear him as the fierce and loving father who has captured our hearts with himself. That is the fear of the Lord. Actually, Mark, I just saw you. I remember your message to this day, the fear of the Lord that you gave. Thank you for that. You see, Pharaoh understood some of this, but he didn't fear the Lord, right? He understood the power of God, for he was actually kind of the the butt end, so to speak, of all of the plagues, wasn't he? He received plague after plague, but still he hardened his heart to, to the point where the firstborn son in all of Egypt was going to be wiped out, and still he stubbornly hardened his heart. Okay, he, That's not the fear of the Lord. Think also of the first generation of the Israelites. That's not the fear of the Lord either. Their tendency to, to worship other things, to be perpetually dissatisfied with who God is and what he's done for them, that is not the fear of the Lord. And so Moses stands here, as I said, at the brink, and he says, look back behind you. Those who didn't fear the Lord in Egypt and those who didn't fear the Lord of your own fathers, where are they? They're gone. They're gone because they didn't fear the Lord. Look ahead of you. Look into the Canaanites, the land that God has promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, this land that they will inherit. It is filled with people who are worshiping idols in debauchery and pagan idolatry. What's their future? They're going to be gone. It is your job to wipe them out and execute my wrath upon such lack of the fear of the Lord. But to you, Israel, he says what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. He is God. There are no competitors. There's no rivals. There are no threats to him. He alone has saved you, Israel, and he alone has the right to your heart. The fear of the Lord has to do with our heart's response to who God is. And so we see in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are certainly implications of the Trinity here where we, we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we do not worship three gods, we worship one God. So there's certainly implications of that here. But the main point in this passage I believe Moses is trying to communicate is this. It's God alone. No others. God alone. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. If you remember in Mark chapter 12, Jesus, when responding to a scribe who thinks he's going to get Jesus into some type of uh, a trap of sorts, intellectual trap, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus comes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he quotes the law of God. And he says, no, the first commandment, it's obvious, you know it, O scribe. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first and the greatest commandment. And everything else flows out from there. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of that sums up the entirety of God's good gift of the law. And so Jesus uses Deuteronomy 
The Old Testament is not antiquated. It's not out of date. It does not not apply to our lives. It is still God's word. And so Jesus communicates this same thing. What Jesus wants for the disciples is what Moses wants for Israel, and it's what God wants for us right now. It is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And so, I must ask, because this passage demands an answer to a question, is this true of us? Do we fear the Lord? Are there any rivals in our hearts, in your heart? Are there any competitors, things that vie for your attention, vie for your affections, things that you think are going to satisfy apart from the one true God? We all have to answer this question, and I think if we're honest, many times we answer this with, yeah, there's that thing this week that's been consuming my thoughts, my worry, my fear. Yeah, that's, then that's real and that happens. I think for some of us, it's something as simple as the praise of others. I think that some of us aspire to nothing else that our kid would be, you know, that kid, the stud on the team that everyone else looks up to. I think for some of us, we'd just love to be respected in our work or our community or wh- wherever we may go. We want honor from people. I think for some of us, it's the fact that we think instantaneous pleasures are going to ultimately satisfy our souls. It is the Lord alone we shall fear. The interesting thing about idolatry is that it takes far more forms, doesn't it, than simply bowing down before a small statue and lighting incense. Idolatry in our culture is everywhere. It just doesn't look exactly the same way as it looked in the Old Testament. God alone is worthy of our awe and our respect and our marvel. He alone is to be feared. But it doesn't end there. The main idea of this passage is the Lord is to be feared and taken home, right? The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. We're commanded to walk in the fear of the Lord, but let's notice here in verses 6 through 9, I'll read them once more. Moses says, and these are the words I command to you today. They shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and of your gates. What is Moses getting at? We are commanded to recount his wondrous deeds and teach them to the next generation. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. It's not to just simply be in our hearts. No, no, we are supposed to, commanded to, pass this on to subsequent generations because they must know to walk in the fear of the Lord. They must avoid idolatry and give their sole affection to the Lord and him alone. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home to the next generation. This is the entire focus of the remainder of today's sermon. It's to be taken home. And so we see here this all-encompassing command to teach them, you know, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, bind them on your hand, put them as frontlets between your eyes. I don't know if you guys know the word phylacteries, but it's mentioned in the New Testament once, but that's where, where Jewish men would put these little boxes that would have scrolls of the Old Testament, little passages of the scripture, literally between their eyes. And they might have been literally capturing the idea of this command, but the real idea is the heart behind this command. Make your home 
make your family a place where God is central. Amen? This is the command. This is the command. Take every opportunity to speak the works and the character of the Lord to your children. You know, this is an oral culture. They didn't have all the books we had. They didn't each have an individual copy of the Bible. So for them to be able to know the law of the Lord, it had to be spoken to them. It had to be repeated over and over again where you would tell story after story after story to continually reinforce the truth of God. This is what it was like in their culture, and I think that still applies to us even though we're a literate culture. We have the Word of God, but we can never cease You know, sit back and say, yeah, I think I know it enough. We need to continue on knowing the Lord. So let's think. For the Israelites, the adults in the community had this command. They had the God-given responsibility to take the fear of the Lord and to take it, or to make it home in the hearts and minds of the coming generations. That was their job. That was their job. This is how they're to love God and to keep their children away from the snares of an idolatrous culture. And so now I say, Christian parents, we have the God-given responsibility to take the fear of the Lord and make it at home in the hearts and minds of our kids. That's our job. Can I get an amen? That is our job. This is how we love God and we also keep our children away from the snares of our idolatrous culture. We are to share the commands of the Lord diligently with our children. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Trevor mentioned that there's some upcoming changes to children's ministry, particularly in second service for the elementary age children. The children's ministry development team has been working on this for a long time, and if you're a parent to an early elementary age child, right, you probably received a piece of paper, and if you didn't, it probably got turned into a paper airplane flying somewhere around your house right now, okay? So it was supposed to come to you. But what I noticed in the letter is the first sentence. In this letter, it states this. The primary goal, our primary goal in children's ministry at Kent City Baptist Church is to partner with families in training children to know, love, and serve Jesus. Did you notice the wording? to partner with families in doing this. We as a church want to make it abundantly clear that it is our desire and our joy to help come alongside parents as they disciple their kids and as they train their kids. But hear me, it is not primarily the church's job to disciple your kids. It is primarily the job of parents to disciple their children. Amen? Primarily, we, we, of course, want to help, as I said, but primarily, it's the parent's responsibility, and it always has been. This is God's design. We happen to have a large church, which is a wonderful thing, and there are many opportunities for us to, to help, but if Sundays and Wednesday nights during the school year are the only time that your children hear the word of God or hear prayer or hear singing, there's probably an issue. So the big question is, how do we do this? What is the answer? What are are we talking about here? And the answer is, is pretty simple. 
when you think about it, it's worship. It is worship. How do we disciple our kids? We lead them in worship of the one true God. You know, and we as adults, we often overcomplicate things. You guys know that? We tend to get that uh, paralysis by analysis thing. And we think so much about something that we don't end up actually ever getting our feet off the ground and doing it. (laughs) Really, this is very simple. I want to recommend to you all a book. It's cheap and it's short. Can I get an amen? See? It's called Family Worship. Family Worship. It's maybe 67 pages long. I think it is. I looked that up. Okay, I did my homework. It's a very short and very brief book written by a guy named Donald Whitney from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And his whole point in here is it's much, much more simple than we think. We think that this would require parents to spend hours a day preparing a lesson for their kids and making sure you do 15 different steps to effectively disciple your kids. And he says, no, 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 no. We need to get our heads out of the clouds and we just need to do the work of sharing the gospel with our kids. And so he suggests three different things, and I'll run through them briefly. Number one is read scripture with your kids. All right, that's not rocket science. Read scripture with your kids. Gather around the dinner table together as a family. Start with the gospel of John. Read a chapter, maybe read 10 verses, maybe read a verse, depending on your kids' attention spans, right? And talk about the Bible with your kids. Make spiritual conversations normal in your family. This is what we are called to do. Ask questions. Let their questions come. Ask your kids what happened, what they learned, how this might apply to them, what amazing thing about God is shown in this passage. Fear the Lord together. Read scripture with your family. Number two, also very, very simple. It's this. Pray for each other. And many of us do this already, but the reminder is helpful. Pray for each other. In fact, let your kids hear you praying for them. Praying, you know, before you go to bed with your spouse is an amazing thing, but it's really, really good witness for your kids to sit there and be prayed for. It's an amazing reality. Ask your children to pray for one another, especially when they're not getting along. Right? Remember how Jesus said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you? Yeah, it applies in our own household sometimes too, doesn't it? Right? Jesus says to pray for our enemies. Pray, ask them to pray for God's blessing upon their irritating brother or little sister. That'll start a conversation, okay? Ask your kids what their needs are, what they've been struggling with. And a really, really great way to encourage uh, openness and vulnerability with your kids is this. Be open and vulnerable with your kids too, right? Let them hear you needing Jesus, It's not enough just to kind of go put a Band-Aid on their issues, but also let them hear your heart and say, yeah, mommy and daddy have been struggling with this. You don't need to tell them the greatest extent and details, but your kids need to know that you need Jesus too, and they need to hear it from you. This might feel odd at first, but it will get more normal as you do it. And the third one, and this is how it relates so well to our series this January, is what do you think you can do with your kids to help pass on your faith? Everybody together. You got it. That was like a little conductor there. That was good. Sing. And before you all look at me and say, yeah, 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 okay, it's probably easy for you and Callie because you're both super musical, I want to say this. 
As I said two weeks ago, you have a song to sing and you have a Savior to sing it to. You do. If your voice is wonderful or if it's terrible, that's not what matters. What matters is that you're passing on truth that has gripped your heart, that you deeply believe, and now you're showing your kids and leading your kids in worship. That's the point. Statistically speaking, 95 to 97% of the world population can sing. Now, you might not sound very good, but you can sing. Most people can sing. It's kind of a universal language. Only 3 to 5% of the population is scientifically tone deaf, where they legitimately can't hit the broadside of a barn when they're aiming for a note, okay? That happens, but still, the point is, has this gripped you? Can you lead your kids? We must. Here's some practical ideas. You can look up words to songs that we do here in church on your phone or your computer. You can try to learn a church song by memory. You can buy really good worship albums. If you have any questions, talk to me. I would love to throw a bunch your way. You can create a YouTube playlist and run it in the background of your house and make it a normal thing to sing with your family. You can sing a cappella with a hymnal. You know they still have those? You can buy them on Amazon. What kind of world is this, right? The point is, sing truth together. He suggests, read scripture, pray, and sing. Now, this whole idea of family worship is actually really significant to me. I don't know, I'm sure many of you know or many of you don't know my personal testimony, but I didn't grow up in in a family where reading the Bible together daily was a thing. Okay? I didn't grow up where we, we sang around the table, hands held, singing kumbaya together. That's not what I experienced. We prayed an obligatory prayer before meals, but our home wasn't centralized around the gospel. But I've chosen, rather than, rather than mourning the days that never were for me, I'm choosing to look forward to the days that are ahead for my family. We hear this in many different contexts, but it's the phrase, change your family tree. Change your family tree. If this wasn't normal for you growing up, that's okay. Don't, don't be angry at your parents for it. Instead, resolve in your heart to lead your family differently. To make the worship of the Lord central, the focal point of your home. This is our job, parents. This is our job. And we need to step up to the plate. Now, I must say, if if you're never home with your family or if you feel as though you're always running from thing to thing to thing, like that's real life, isn't it? Right? If you feel like that is the case, perhaps you've got to have a conversation with your spouse and say, are we doing the things that really matter? Because if we can't even carve out, you know, 10 minutes as a family to just read the Bible and pray for one another, like maybe our priorities are a little off. Discuss that with your spouse and and come up with a time that will work well for your family. Maybe it's early in the morning before people leave for school and work. Maybe it's right after school when people get home before practices happen or games. Maybe it's right before bed. Maybe it is the dinner table. That doesn't matter. The point is, worship the Lord with your family. Israel was called to pass it on to the next generation, and so are we. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. Say it with me. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. Now, there are likely some questions on your mind. I've tried to think of all of them. 
pretty sure I didn't, but we're going to go for the ones that I came up with, all right? First one is this. I'm not a parent, or I'm single, or we're empty nesters, so how does this apply to me? Does this even apply to me? I want to help, but I don't really know how. Well, to you, I would suggest get involved in our church. There's a, there's a lot in the next generation coming up that we want to do well to disciple, right? There are many, many kids, praise the Lord, in our church. Get involved with the children's ministry. Get involved with the Rise of Student Ministries. Ask us if you want for a list of kids in our church that you can pray for. We would love that more and more adults would be praying, empty nesters even, would be praying for the kids in our church. Think outside the box. Be creative and do what you can to influence the next generation for Christ. Maybe this one applies to you. I'm a kid or I'm a young adult, so what does this mean for me? Well, first I would say, fear the Lord. Make him the central point of your life. There are going to be so many things in life that creep in and take over what ought to be, as the one church in Revelation, if you remember, says, our first love. Don't lose your first love. The second one is, for you kids, is even more practical. It's uh, encourage your parents. Pray for them because they actually have a really tough job. When I was a kid, I thought parenting was just like the easiest thing in the world. You know, you make a perfect child like me, what could go wrong, right? My mom would probably not agree with that, but anyway. But really, parents have a hard job. Pray for them that they would have the strength and the confidence to lead you. Many parents simply don't feel confident in teaching the Bible or even reading the Bible with their kids, and so we don't. But we need to be emboldened, and you can pray for your parents. And then when they do, the last thing I would say is this. It's really hard. Listen to them. Listen to your parents. Respect them. Honor your father and mother. Do you remember this is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you. Honor them and learn from them. Maybe you have this question. Uh, my parents don't fear the Lord. What do I do? Well, it's not us, but it is the Lord who opens hearts, right? He is the one who softens the hearts. He opens the eyes of the blind. This is what he does. For you, I would say, get as involved as you can be in the ministries of our church, the youth ministry, the children's ministry, and ask one of the leaders to mentor you, to read the Bible with you. They'd be more than willing to see you have a hunger for the Lord. All right, this is a very practical question. You ready for this one? What if I've tried to do this, but it has been an absolute disaster? <laughs> to that, I simply say, welcome to the club. <laughs> Okay? Can I get an amen from the parents? Amen. It's hard. There's so many issues. This is not going to be Instagram perfect. It's hard. There are going to be distractions. The dog will lick their hand under the table and they will start laughing uncontrollably. That's okay. There's going to be crazy, tired, exhausted days, crazy, tired, exhausted kids, and oh my, the questions. The questions that your kids will come up with are astounding and they will make you laugh and cry all at the same time, okay? Simple songs like, why do we sing this song? Why do we bring our Bibles to church? P.S., bring your Bibles to church. Why do we drink the world's tiniest cups of juice? I don't understand. And to be honest, the juice isn't really that bad. It's those really small, nasty, wafer cracker things. Like, wh why? Why do we do this, mom and dad? You might get that question. They might be here during an Easter service and wonder what the poor people did wrong that were trying to drown in the tank, okay? That's very likely. You never know what will come out of their mouths. But honestly, that's the fun of it. 
It is so much fun because your kids will come up with questions, and that's just the way it should be. They're meant to be inquisitive. They ask why, why, why. And as Christian parents, let's get to know our Bibles better so that we might be ready in and out of season to answer for the hope that we have. It starts in the home. It starts in the home. Now, I would like to speak just for a minute or two to the dads in the house. All the dads give a good grunt. Ready? Yeah, someone over there. Is that you, Bob? I knew it. That was amazing. All right, dads, I want you to repeat after me, even if you have full-grown children. Ready? It's my job to lead my family. Now say it with some confidence. It's my job to lead my family. The ladies' hearts are just fluttering right now, okay? (laughs) Please, dads, read later Ephesians 5 and 6. Okay, that's your homework. Read Ephesians 5 and 6. I'll summarize here. It is our job to love and lead our wives in such a way that on the day of the Lord, we will be able to present our wife to the Lord without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing because we have washed them by the water of the word and prayer. This is our job with our wife. And then our job with our kids. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Don't pick and fault find with every little thing they do wrong. Don't do that. Instead, train your children up in the fear and admonition and the discipline of the Lord. This is our direct job. And it starts with us. Now, if you think that you are too busy and might not be able to do something like this, I want to read a little story from the back of this book. Okay? Who knows the name Charles Spurgeon? Okay? He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a Baptist, represent, pastor back in England. Okay? And he... He has an amazing, amazing story, an amazing ministry back in the late 1800s. And the writer of this book has done a lot of research on Spurgeon, and this is one of his footnotes in the back, talking about how Spurgeon practiced family worship. He said this, Some may think that Spurgeon lived in a much simpler era that afforded him much more time for family worship. But he said, After all of my research, I have come to find this about his life. Spurgeon pastored the largest evangelical church in the world at the time with more than 6,000 active members. Okay, that's number one. He preached almost every single day in his church and various other places. He edited his sermons for weekly publications and thereby produced in the 64-volume Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit the greatest collection of works by any single author in the English language. On top of that, he wrote an additional 120 books, which averages to about one every four months throughout his adult life. He presided over 66 different ministries, such as the pastor's college he had founded. He edited a monthly magazine. He, on average, read five books every week, many of which he would review for his magazine. And he wrote with a dip pen, not type, with a dip pen, on average, 500 letters per week. God gave Spurgeon an extraordinary capacity for work and productivity, he says. And yet, despite the ceaseless crushing demands on his schedule, at six each evening, setting aside its due list that few of us could match today, he gathered his wife, his twin boys, 
and all others who might be present in his home for a time of family worship. If Charles Spurgeon can do this <laughs> with that heavy of a load, surely we can carve out some time, dads. Can I get an amen? Okay. Be encouraged by that. Don't be intimidated by it. But be encouraged to say that someone with such responsibilities still made it a priority, and so must we. When God made the heavens and the earth, he created mankind in his own image. And he wanted us to fill the earth with little image bearers that reflect his glory throughout the earth. That's God's design. Little worshipers everywhere to fill this planet. The fear of the Lord was to spread, but humanity as we know chose against our good God and sin entered, to the wor entered the world and has been corrupting things ever since. The sin is idolatry in our own hearts. It often leads to an unwillingness in us to do the right things because we're afraid, we're intimidated, or we're just lazy. It even leads us to believe that we could never lead our kids like this because there would be no hip greater hypocrite on the face of the planet. If you feel that way, that's normal. But let me remind you again of the good news of the gospel. Your sins have been paid in full. Every single one. Jesus has borne them all upon himself as he hung upon the cross. Where we are weak and our weaknesses abound, right parents? His strength will sustain us. When we are fearful and afraid, know that his presence is with us. He never leaves. And though we will certainly blunder and stumble and fall, our lives are now hidden in Christ with God. And he, Jesus, has never failed nor never will. So take heart. The fear of the Lord is to be taken home. And it starts with us as families choosing to make this the staple of our homes. Singing is a gift from God and one of the ways in which we pass on our faith to the next generation.